Imagine that the Queen in her final months had written down an account of her life and in particular if she had highlighted different ways that God had been with her during her life and if she'd given all the glory and honour to him. Well that would have been quite something and in a way that's like what David does here. We can't be sure whether David is approaching the end of his life as he writes these words Uh, But they do provide a fitting conclusion uh, to the books of 1 and 2 Samuel uh, uh, as the book draws towards a close. Way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah in her song had looked forward to the kingdom that God was going to bring about. And she had finished with the words, The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That was before Israel ever had such a thing as a king. But she spoke prophetically by the Spirit. And now in 2 Samuel 22, Israel's second and greatest king looks back on his reign. In some ways the two songs are like a mirror image. Hannah says the Lord will thunder in heaven. And here chapter 22, 14, we read the Lord thundered from heaven. Hannah looks forward to God being uh, with his anointed. Uh, David uh, looks back to how God has been with him as God's anointed. Uh, The word is used in the last verse here. And so what we have here is a fitting summary of David's reign. Looking back at what God has done for him, but also looking forward And isn't that that always the case? Looking back at what God has done for us in the past, looking back what he has done in history, it gives us confidence as we look forward. And we have in this psalm a language that we can take and make our own, both in prayer and in praise. Can you say of David, or can you say of God as David does here, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Uh, Not just boys and girls, that this is my my parents' God, but that this is my God, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my saviour. Can you say, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. If you can say those things, well, hallelujah, uh, because God has been, been at work in your life. Perhaps someone is here tonight and you're feeling cold and distant from God this evening. Uh, as we all do at times. Well these are words that you can take and meditate on. Uh, take some time and, and think about how God is your rock, your fortress, your deliverer, the horn of your salvation and so on. Let, let David's praise stir yours. When we think about what we've been saved from, uh, when we think about how little strength we would have uh, to, to, make, to try and make it to the end of the Christian life on our own, surely we should be overwhelmed with praise. It's so easy to rush into God's presence without reminding ourselves of who he is and what he has done. And so perhaps even as you pray tomorrow morning, one one really practical 
thing to do might be to take these words, these opening words of this chapter and pray them back to God, reminding yourself of, of whose presence you're coming into. So often our, our, our prayers can be just thanksgiving and then supplication, praying for things. Uh, but, but these are words that we can take as we, as we begin a prayer uh, to remind ourselves of what God is like. So, so verses 2 to 4 here, they're, they're written by a king, but they're words which any Christian could uh, and should take on their lips. Perhaps what follows might seem a, a little further away from our experience, but it doesn't take too much imagination to apply them to ourselves. Verses 5 and 6 talk about a near-death experience. It's language of Jonah in the fish. For the waves of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. And perhaps there was a time when we went through a a near-death experience. Uh, Whether that's a a medical situation or or a, a car crash, something like that. And yet God delivered us. Or perhaps we were in a situation where we felt like we were drowning and there was no way out. And then God intervened. And apart from from that, we wouldn't be here today. Ultimately, of course, these words describe us before God saved us. Outside of Christ, the waves of death encompassed us and the torrents of destruction assailed us. The cords of Sheol entangled us and the snares of death confronted us. Think of the drowning feeling you might have if you were mired in debt. And if you had exhausted all other avenues and you knew that unless someone came in and bailed you out, you would lose everything. But then imagine someone did just that. Uh, They bailed you out. They gave you what you needed and more. What a relief that would be. But that is nothing compared to the debt of our sins being paid. From the absolute depths in in distress, verse 7, we have called to God and our voice has reached his heavenly temple and our cry has come to his ears. Praise God that he has heard our cry. And then we have a longer section from verses 8 through 16. We might expect just one verse here. I was drowning, but my cry came to his ears and the Lord delivered me. Because... You could sum up verses 8 to 16 in just those words. The Lord delivered me. But instead of that we have this hugely dramatic description of what God has done. Verse 8. The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled. Verse 9. Smoke went up from his nostrils. Verse 10. He bowed the heavens and came down. Verse 11. He rode on a cherub and flew. And yes, we know there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. But is this description not a bit over the top as a description of God intervening to save us or to save David? Well, there are are two ways to answer that. 
The first way is to say that as someone has put it, David doesn't merely want to tell us a fact about the Lord. He wants you to see the Lord in all his saving power. Just to say the words, the Lord delivered me, they would have expressed truth here. But this dramatic language in verses 8 to 16, it does more than than express truth, uh, but it it impresses truth on us. Uh, That's what it's designed to do. May God save us from the danger of cold and clinical descriptions of him. More and more may we see and have a sense of his utter majesty as it's displayed here. His, his power, his grandeur, his magnificence. Just a, a few words aren't enough here for David to sum up all, who, all that God has done for him. Brothers and sisters tonight, this is your God and this is how he acts. Let these descriptions stir you. So the Bible doesn't simply express truth, but it wants to impress truth on us. May we leave here each week not simply being informed, but being transformed. Having not just heard a description of God, but having had an encounter with him. Is that what you're, you're coming, expecting each week? Not just to learn more about God, but to have an encounter with him. Pray for me as your minister that God would give me words that don't simply express truth, but words that the Holy Spirit would take and use to impress truth on you. So verses 8 to 16, the description of God's salvation there, it's an antidote to cold and clinical ways of thinking about God. But still, I think we'd be right if we've a sense that there's something more going on here than simply God rescuing us as individuals, uh, wonderful as that is, or even uh, God simply rescuing a great king like David. The, the language used here is Exodus language. In verse 16, the blast of the breath of the Lord's nostrils and the channels of the sea being seen, the foundations of the world are laid bare. It's just like when God brings his people out of Egypt and divides the sea for them to walk between. In verse 9, the, the, the darkness or the smoke, in verse 12, the the darkness and clouds, then the, the thunder and lightning in verse 14 and 15. It's very similar language to that used on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20. So why is all this pointing us back to Exodus? Well, in the Old Testament, to the Old Testament believer, the Exodus was the the supreme example of God's deliverance. The way we look back to the cross, they look back to the Exodus. If someone in the Old Testament wanted to explain what God rescuing his people looked like, they would go back to the time when God brought his people out of slavery through the Red Sea. As someone has said, it's the language of God ungluing creation. 
And here this language is being used for the rescue of one man. And perhaps by now we have a, a growing sense that there's, there's something going on here that goes beyond David or any one of us. And that sense deepens as we get to verses 21 to 25. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Verse 22, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. Verse 24, I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Some have read those words and said, well, this must be David writing before he had Uriah killed and before he stole his wife, because surely he couldn't write like that afterwards. Others have said, rightly, that it's not necessarily a claim to sinless perfection, but just a claim not to be guilty of what he's being accused of. As Matthew Henry once put it, there's a difference between weakly departing from our duty and wickedly departing from God. The difference between weakly departing from our duty and wickedly departing from God. And yet, is this language that any of us would be comfortable using about ourselves? Verse 25, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Surely the gospel tells us that the Lord rewards us according to Jesus' righteousness, not our own. Well, this psalm doesn't contradict that. And it doesn't contradict that because of who is speaking. The New Testament authors believed that Jesus was ultimately the one speaking in this song. Yes, David writes the words. On one level, they're a description about him and his life. But on a deeper level, they're a description of his great descendant, Jesus Christ. We, we can come to the Bible with the assumption that if we want a real clear description of what happened to, to Jesus, then we need to look for things that are written after the cross. But if God had it all planned out, he could have language from before the cross that would describe it in as great detail as anything that would come after. That, as I say, is how the New Testament authors treated this psalm. Part of verse 3 is quoted in Hebrews 2.13 as the words of the Lord Jesus. There's no explanation for why these words are treated uh, as those of the Lord Jesus it's just assumed and then verse 50 is quoted in Romans 15 9 as Jesus praising God among the Gentiles and if those New Testament authors guided by the Holy Spirit saw the beginning of this psalm as about Jesus if they saw the end of the psalm about Jesus then it is natural to understand that he is ultimately the one speaking in this psalm. So if you're into red letter Bibles, this passage should all be in red. 
Because according to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, it's, it's all about Jesus. People will sometimes say to us, well, if we just sing the Psalms, then we never get to sing about Jesus. But that's not the way the New Testament writers saw them. In fact, in the Psalms, we not only get to sing about Jesus, which is all that a human writing can do, but we get to sing the very words of Jesus. We get to sing about his emotions, his, his feelings as he went to the cross. In fact, the, the second last line of the chapter says that the Lord shows steadfast love to his anointed. The word anointed gives us the word Messiah. So this psalm is the Lord speaking about his Messiah and the Messiah speaking about his Lord. And ultimately, all any human Messiah can do is point us to the true and ultimate Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so looking at this psalm, the way the New Testament writers look back on it, that explains the dramatic language being used here. That explains the claim that, that this man will be rewarded for his righteousness. And with Jesus in view, the language of verses 5 and 6 can be understood as speaking not simply of a near-death experience, but of his actual death. The waves of death encompassed me, the cords of Sheol, uh, the grave, it, it entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. I said earlier that that is Jonah-esque language. And Jonah's three days and three nights in the fish were used by Jesus himself as a picture of his death. And it's the same with David's experience here. It's a picture of something greater. And so the dramatic language, verses 8 to 16, The earth reeled and rocked, the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. It becomes the language of God raising Jesus from the dead. Try reading verses 17 to 19, thinking of Jesus' resurrection. Not because it's a novel thing to do, because this is how the New Testament wants us to read this song. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemies, from those who hated me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. With the cross, it surely was the day of Jesus' calamity. And yet the Lord brought him out. Why? Because he delighted in me. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Or verse 49. Jesus could say, uh, more so even than David. You brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. But perhaps someone will say, well, if this song is really about Jesus, then does it have any relevance for me? And the answer to that is yes. More so, in fact, than if these words were just about David. Because by faith we are joined on to Jesus. We become part of his body. 
And so what's true of him in this song becomes true of us. One example is those verses I just quoted, verses 17 to 19. In 1762, during the persecution of Protestants in France, a 27-year-old minister called Francis Rochette was arrested. Three brothers from a noble family attempted to rescue him, but the rescue attempt failed. All four of them were condemned to death. The youngest was just 20 years old. And as they awaited execution, they sung these verses. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. If those words had just been a historical record of David's rescue from the hands of Saul, what hope would that have given those four martyrs? You know, perhaps it would have given them some hope. God has done this for David in the past. Perhaps he'll do it for us as well. But if these words ultimately describe not just a rescue but a resurrection, and if the resurrection being described is that of Jesus, and if Jesus is the head and Christians are the body, then no wonder these four young men could sing confidently in the face of death. Because they were joined on to Christ by faith. And so their resurrection was as certain as his. Seeing this song as ultimately about Jesus also helps us when we feel overwhelmed and burdened by sin. When in verse 21 our hands aren't clean. When in verse 23 we have turned aside from his statutes. When in verse 24, we know that we're not blameless and we haven't kept ourselves from guilt. When these verses are not true of us, they are always true of him. And as a result, we can take them and make them our own. Because we sing them in Christ. Or what about verse 20? He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. How quick would you be to say that God delights in you? How, how do you think God feels about you this evening? As he looks at you this evening, how do you think he feels towards you? Many Christians, I think, might think that God feels to them a feeling of disappointment or, or at best grudging acceptance. And if this psalm was just about David, the fact that God delighted in David wouldn't give us much assurance that he felt the same as us because we're not David. But if the psalm is ultimately about Jesus, then we have more confidence that God delights in us. Why? Well, because as the New Testament goes on to spell out, when God looks at us, he does so in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, is all over the New Testament. God looks at us in Christ. Our sins, which are many, are covered by the righteous robes of his Son. 
And so when God looks at us, he sees the sinless perfection of his own dear son. Rather than saying our half-hearted obedience, he sees the no-holds-barred commitment of the Lord Jesus. He sees his perfect obedience. Not because God is turning a blind eye to our sin, but because that's what Jesus bought for us on the cross. In Christ, our sin is taken away and our guilt atoned for. God raised Jesus in order to make him the firstborn of many brothers. And as our heavenly father looks out on his blood-bought family, he does so with delight. Because we're covered by the righteousness of Christ. So this is a song which looks to the past. It looks to the cross. It's a song about the present. About how God looks at us in Christ, even tonight. It's a song about our eternal future, how our our resurrection one day is certain. But it's also a song which helps us look forward with confidence to what Jesus will do in this world, even in our own day. In verse 43, it's really stretching the phrase head of nations, plural, if we apply it to David. Even at the height of his power, he was just the head of one nation, uh, the United Kingdoms of Israel and Judah. David wasn't really the head of of multiple nations. Uh, This language goes goes way beyond David, uh, which is undoubtedly part of the reason that Romans 15 picks up in these verses and applies them to the Lord Jesus and to the nations of the world putting their trust in him. Paul tells us there that part of the reason that Jesus came was in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he quotes verse 49. So this is a psalm with a a missionary thrust. Uh, The psalms are the ultimate mission praise. They're given to enthuse and equip the church in her mission to take the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to every tribe, tongue, nation and language. And not doing so in the hope that that we might convince people, uh, but doing so in the certainty that, that those nations have already been given to the Lord Jesus for his inheritance. And so as I've announced today, our our latest organised evangelistic events. And as we look ahead to that and prayerfully think about who we might invite. And as we look to the future generally. We have a prophecy of what's going to happen. And that is that Jesus will win. And that right up until the end of the world, he will keep saving people. And no one and nothing can stop him doing that. Have you ever thought about that? Right up until the end of time, people are going to be saved. Uh, In this community, people are going to be saved. And no one and nothing can stop God doing that. Think of those words from Isaiah 52. We looked at them a few weeks ago. Paul quotes them in the same chapter of Romans. Those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. And if we do feel the thought rising in us as we think of special services, well, there's no point in inviting that person, 
they wouldn't be interested. They, they would never come. Remember that the word of God itself says, those who, have been, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And the explosive growth and spread of the gospel from that day to this is testimony to the truth of that. Surely we have an illustration of that even among us. It's maybe not quite 50-50, but we, we, have, we have here people who have been brought up going to church, but we, we also have those who don't. Even this morning, think of, think of those in, in Stranraer who've been brought up in this church, brought up in other churches, brought up going to church. And how many of those brought up going to churches were not at worship today? And yet, someone with no church backgrounds travels an hour and a half to be at church. And we don't know what God is doing, but we do know that those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And so we can go out with confidence. People with no church background, it should give us more confidence. Jesus will have the reward of his sufferings. The nations are his inheritance. Psalm 2 tells us that. The nations... Are his inheritance, do we agree with that? Scotland is one of the nations, do we agree with that? Southwest Scotland is part of his inheritance. The one who has rescued us from the cords of death, the one who has moved heaven and earth to rescue us, he can do the same for others. Great salvation he brings to his king. And so in light of this song, let us pray, pray that we would see the king's salvation being experienced in these days. And if we stick close to him, we can be sure that one day, looking back on our lives, we, like David, will have an overflowing abundance of things to praise him for. Amen. Well, let's praise him now. With some of these words, as we find them in Psalm 18, we'll sing verses 17 to 22 on page 28. Psalm 18, 17 to 22, starting on page 28. Let's sing them first and foremost as the words of Jesus. Uh, the, these words are, are, are beautifully described by Andrew Bonner. Uh, a, a Scottish minister in the 1800s uh, as, uh, as the Lord Jesus telling his, his younger brothers how God was with him on the day of his distress. Uh, so verses 17 and 18 here we have the Lord Jesus describing about how God raised him from the dead. And then in verses 19 to 22 we have him describing his righteousness and his reward. Or we could say his righteousness and our reward. We get his perfect righteousness put to our account. And he gets the inheritance of nations. Psalm 18, 17 to 22. Uh, we'll stand uh, and sing praise. <laughs> 